Hello, welcome to the Ridgeway Security Hour, brought to you by the Matthew B. Ridgeway Center for International Security Studies and the Graduate School for Public International Affairs at the University of Pittsburgh. I'm your host, Adam Dietrich. This is a short preview, a teaser, if you will, for our new podcast. Let me introduce you to who we are. The Ridgeway Security Hour is a monthly podcast exploring the issues of the day in international security and featuring a deep dive interview with a special guest expert. Our discussions will be informed by a rotating panel of Ridgeway scholars who contribute to the work at the Matthew B. Ridgeway Center for International Security Studies. We are about to hear excerpts from our interview with Ryan Grauer, an associate professor here at Gispia. You might know him from his semi-viral Twitter explanation of the Game of Thrones Battle of Winterfell. We talked to him about his thoughts now that the series has ended, so be warned, the night is dark and full of spoilers. Okay, I have to ask, what about King Bran? I, I think in the same way that the Treaty of Versailles was a 20-year truce between World Wars I and II, I think Bran's reign will very likely be a 30, 40, 50-year truce uh, in the war for control of Westeros. So you think the matter of succession is not really solved, that when Bran goes away, uh, the... Uh, the major lords of Westeros will resume fighting and squabbling over the, uh, well, not the Iron Throne, the, the Wheeled Throne. We don't really have a good name for that yet. Well, given what we saw of Robert Baratheon, I'm not sure he'd have been sober enough to lead his forces against the Army of the Dead. <laughs> he did defeat Rhaegar, though. you got to give him indeed, props for indeed. that. All right, looking back on the, on the show, do you have a favorite battle sequence and why? Well, yeah, my, my favorite battle sequence um, is one that took place at the, the fall of King's Landing at the end, and it's favorite, favorite's sort of an odd word to use. Um, I, and it's the moment when the, the forces that Jon Snow is leading um, meet up with the Golden Company inside the walls of King's Landing. And what you see there is, is very true to combat in the way that veterans talk about it. It's, it's an instance where it looks like things are over and you're not going to have to kill the, the other um, because mass murder is something that humans just, with exceptions, are not really good at doing. And so you see this tension of, of two forces that were prepared to destroy each other but then it seems like they may not have to, but neither is quite sure that they're not going to have to. I, and it's that, that tension, I, and it's a very human scene of battle that eventually devolves into slaughter because of choices made by Daenerys. Um, but I just say that that one moment that doesn't actually involve combat, I, I thought was the, the most gripping battle scene of the entire series. That's really interesting. You also preempted my next question, which was going to be about the sacking of King's Landing. Do you want to talk about that uh, from a broader perspective as well, outside of that one moment? I, I, absolutely. So uh, Daenerys, I, I think, rightly, comes under a lot of criticism for her decision to, to violate the, the norm that when the bells ring, the battle stops. Um, there are arguments lodged in... Um, claims and theories advanced by folks like Tom Schelling about how to use violence to coerce to suggest that maybe she needed to do this to assert her political dominance uh, over the people of King's Landing. 
Um, maybe that's true, maybe it's not. I'm not convinced right, that it is. Um, given the number of rulers that the people of King's Landing had had over the past seven or eight years and how bad some of them were and how, uh, how pliant they were, right? You didn't see a Sons of the Harpies uh, equivalent in King's Landing. So I'm not convinced that she actually needed to suppress a, and exhibit her dominance over the people to maintain her status as the ruler. But what's definitely the case is that by inflicting the mass carnage that she did, even if she hadn't been killed by Jon Snow, her legitimacy to rule over time would have been much, much harder to establish and maintain. Interesting. Uh, this is counter to the opinion a lot of people have that the very reason they did this was not necessarily subject to King's Landing, but similar to the, the burning of the fields by Aegon the Conqueror, that all the other lords would bend the knee. But I, from a humanist perspective, I definitely appreciate your approach. Uh, you've talked about dragons and how their use is sort of parallel to like close air support. Mm -hmm. Applying that to King's Landing, do you see a lot of similarities to the Assad regime's bombing of Aleppo or uh, Styrian, or excuse me, Saudi airstrikes in Yemen? Do you think that the show is accurately portraying these horrors of military actions against civilians? I, absolutely, I, and I think that this is one of the less appreciated values of shows like Game of Thrones because we often see on the news uh, reports of bombing uh, in places like Yemen or, or in Syria but I often you don't have news crews there filming what's actually happening and what it's like but in a fictional setting you can do things like follow Arya as she's going through and trying to rescue whoever she can I, and the disorientation and the fear that's so palpable um, it's, it's much easier to um, present that in a way that is realizable for the viewer that you don't get on the news. And so to the extent that those connections can be made by an audience, certainly watching something like those, se those sequences in Game of Thrones can help make real some, some of the realities of war. And maybe that's something that the population, uh, the American population, thinks is worth doing, worth supporting, or worth countering. But they'd be doing it from a more informed perspective than they might have otherwise had. Uh, so from a policy or macro level, and so not individual or, or characters, uh, what do you think Game of Thrones is saying about power, international affairs, about war, you know, looking at the series as a whole? So from an IR perspective, it's often treated as this ultimate vindication of realist, hard-nosed realist thought. And I think there's a lot of evidence to support that kind of claim that um, in the rough and tumble world of international politics, or in this case, civil war politics, um, he who has power rules. But I think at a more subtle level, what you see are in the Game of Thrones, the, the characters that pursue power absolutely without moderating with some sense of what's normatively right ultimately come to a bad end. I, and so my perspective on where the, the show ultimately comes down and suggests is something more along the lines of classical realism where power is a driving force I, and you have to pay attention to power distributions and what threats exist out there in a military form, but you can't completely divorce that from normative considerations, issues around legitimacy, issues around leadership and diplomacy. I, and if you don't achieve the right balance, then you're very likely to go the way of someone like Cersei, 
by or even someone like Daenerys. And that is it for a little preview. I'd like to thank Ryan Grauer for coming on with us, and thank you for listening today. We're premiering our first episode of the Ridgeway Security Hour on September 3rd. So if you enjoyed this episode, smash that like or follow button on your favorite podcast app so you can be notified about the next episode. Again, I'm Adam Dietrich. Take care.